0: The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We have concluded our summer series on sanctification. If you've been with us for the last 13 weeks, we have uh, been wrestling through the issue of personal holiness and sanctification, and we had a wonderful time over the summer addressing that very pertinent topic Next week, we will be jumping into our study of the book of Romans again. We'll be back in that wonderful book. I know some of you are very excited about that, have been waiting maybe for 13 weeks for that to happen. And so uh, next uh, Sunday, we'll be back in Romans chapter 12, and we invite you to come back for that. This morning, I would like to highlight uh, our seminary and the seminary that we've been a part of now for a little over a year. Most of you are aware of the fact that we have a seminary campus here of the Expositors' Seminary. We are now in the second year of this wonderful ministry. We have five students here on our campus, and there are 85 students spread out across 10 campuses across the country. Uh, we have two campuses in Florida, a campus in Georgia, one in Alabama, one in Kansas, one in Virginia, one in North Carolina, one in Texas, and just a, new openly, a newly opened campus in Phoenix, Arizona. We here at Maranatha are part of that ten-church coalition that enables us to train men for ministry in the context of the local church. And those ten churches are bound together and united together, not only by a common doctrine, but by a common philosophy of ministry and a shared commitment of the importance of training men for pastoral ministry in the context of the church. We in those 10 churches have a, the same passion to see men equipped to be shepherds of the church. Not just preachers, not just leaders, not just people who give direction to the church, but people who genuinely love, care, and serve and shepherd the body of Christ. That is the common theme that binds us together. We are one seminary on 10 campuses. And we're tied together through live conferencing, uh, live stream video conferencing, and what's unique about the, the commitment of the Expositors Seminary is that the pastors of those ten coalition churches are the faculty for the seminary very unique in the sense that you you have pastors training pastors. That that is by design. That is intentional. That is not by accident. We have built within the framework of the Expositor Seminary the very commitment that pastors train pastors and churches train pastors. This is the heartbeat of the Expositor Seminary, the training of ministry in the context of the local church where the seminary is embedded right into the church, where it's embedded into the very fabric and DNA of the the church where you can't really tell where the church ends and the seminary begins and and vice versa, where the seminary ends and the church begins. there's, There's a seamless transition between church and seminary. That's by design. Because we believe that the the local church is the incubator for pastoral training. It is the place where students are involved in the life of the church and embraced by the church. And under the leadership and the direction and the eldership and the pastoring of those church leaders, it is pastoral training that involves the entire church. It's pastoral training that doesn't just involve a a couple select individuals, but it takes a whole body of elders and people and members to, to really pour into the life of seminary students. This is the unique design of the Expositor Seminary. And this model of training men for ministry in the context of the local church makes it very distinct from the institutional model. It's important for us to understand this because uh, a little over a year ago when we were contemplating this and discussing this, some of the questions that came up were questions like like these that are valid questions. Why another seminary? There's four or five in West Michigan. In fact, there's three within 20-minute drive of Maranatha Bible Church. So why another seminary? We have plenty of seminaries. Why, Why would we not want to just encourage men to go? And in some cases, that's a good setting. And I'm not saying, listen very carefully, I'm not saying that the institutional model is a bad model entirely in and of itself. There's some great benefits to the institutional model. You can learn some biblical languages at the feet of some incredible scholars, and you can learn your exegetical skills and your homiletical skills, and you can learn theology from some very gifted professors. And so, I I in no way want to communicate or diminish the role of the institution in training men for ministry. It has been used greatly by the Lord. I am the product of an institutional seminary, as Joe is, as others of you here in the room are. You've benefited from the privilege of being in an institutional seminary. And so I in no way want to dismiss that at all. I am very thankful for the privilege that the Lord allowed me to be a part of my alma mater and He used it mightily to teach me and instruct me, and I'm thankful for that. But we need to admit that the institutional model of seminary training has some built-in weaknesses. It has some built-in inadequacies that, that really cannot become overcome by the design of the institutional model. And here's some of the weaknesses that are built into that. Because, because seminaries are in large part separated from the local church, that there are some issues and some drawbacks that come to that, like the institutional model cannot confirm a man's call to ministry. It can't. You don't have to have a a clear sense of that. The seminary has no ability to confirm that call. The, The seminary just receives applications and they accept people on the basis of those applications. And yet, they can't confirm a man's call to ministry. They haven't seen that man in ministry. They haven't spent time in context with him. There hasn't been a relationship that's been developed over years in the context of a church setting to confirm that God has called the man to ministry. Furthermore, the institutional model cannot gauge spiritual giftedness. It can't truly assess spiritual giftedness, but for the same reasons, because they haven't seen the man in the context of the church. They haven't seen him minister. They haven't seen him hone his gifts and develop his gifts, so they don't have an ability to gauge that giftedness. They also can't affirm a man's character. The institutional model of seminary can, in some sense, see how a man is built, but they can't ultimately assess his character, they, they can't assess his strengths and his weaknesses, they, they can't see what he's like in his home, they can't see what he's like and how he handle, handles his kids and, and how he spawn, responds to trials and how he handles the pressures of ministry and how he deals with sin in his own life and, and ultimately whether he meets the qualifications of being a pastor and an elder. Institutional model also cannot really teach you how to do pastoral ministry. It can put tools in your toolbox and give you some some good things that will help you when you get into ministry, but the, the institutional model cannot ultimately train someone to actually do the work of the ministry. That is best learned in the context of the church. And so, it is possible for a man to go to an institutional seminary, it's possible for him to enroll there, to be accepted there, to, to engage in three or four or five years of training in that setting and do the homework and do the schoolwork and pass and receive a diploma and get a degree that says you are now approved to be a, a, a pastor and be a graduate of that institution and not be equipped to do ministry. You understand that? Seminaries don't make Pastors. God does through the church. It's critical that we understand that because those things man's character, a man's calling, a man's giftedness, a man's ability to shepherd and ministry skills and and all that is necessary for a man to truly be an elder and a pastor in in the church is best affirmed and identified through the ministry and the leadership and the body of Christ in the local church. The church is the proving grounds. It is the testing grounds. It is the place where God has given His authority. Let me say that very clearly. God has given the authority for pastoral training to the church. In other words, we could say it this way. God has not given authority to the seminary to train pastors. that may be kind of a paradigm shift for you. And I think it's a paradigm shift for many of us because we're so used to the institutional model. We're so used to sending people to Bible college and sending people to a brick and mortar school and sending them away for three or four or five years and assuming that that institution is going to train them to be a pastor and they come back and we assume automatically that they're going to be adequately trained and equipped to be a pastor and yet... Who's vetted them in those five years? Who's established an understanding of their character and their calling and their giftedness? God has not given authority to the seminary or the institution or any parachurch organization to train men for ministry. He has given His authority to the church. And I think that's clear in the Bible. I think if you just read the Bible and if you just look at the New Testament and you look at how men were trained in the context of a New Testament setting, the reality is very clear that the primary instrument that God has given for the accomplishing of His purposes in this life and in this age is the church, including pastoral training. Let me give you some examples. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Who did Christ give his authority to? He gave it to the church. He he said to Peter, on you and your ministry, I'm going to build my church. And through that entity, the gates of Hades will not be able to overpower it. Authority given to the church. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, the Great Commission It says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's an authoritative command of Christ to the disciples to go bring the gospel by the establishment of the church. And his authority lies then within the church. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 Paul says to Timothy, I write that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. The church is the pillar and the support of the truth, not an institution. The church is this entity, the bride of Christ. And so, if you read through the New Testament, what you begin to see is that the model that God has put in place consistently is the use of the local church to affirm a man for ministry and then to equip him and train him to do that work. Let me give you some examples. I know you're in Ephesians 4. Hold your finger there. We'll come back. Go to Acts chapter 16. That's to the left in your Bible, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 and the first three verses. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now I want you to notice verse 2, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. He was spoken well by who? By the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Who affirmed Timothy's character? Who identified him as a man of God? Who, who said, Yeah, that man's a godly man? He is in pu- uh, public and private who he is, who he says he is. Who did that? The brethren in the church in Lystra and Iconium. And I'll notice verse 3 Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because he was of the Jews who were in, the, in those parts. They all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul took this man. He said, I want this man to be with me. I want to take him with me so I can train him and equip him. And it's done in the context of ministry. So the church affirms him, and then Paul takes him into ministry with him to train him and teach him. That's the model. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Just a couple more examples. Again, hold your finger in Ephesians 4. I promise we're coming back there. 1 Timothy chapter 4, I want you to notice as well that the affirmation of a man for ministry came through the church. This is Paul referring to Timothy. I just read from you for you from Acts chapter 16 where he was identified. And then some years later, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 14, look what he says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you've got to remember that there were men in your life who affirmed you, and that affirmation came collectively by the presbytery, by the elders, by the church. It's very important. Affirmation for pastoral ministry lies within the church. Go over a couple more pages to the right. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Not only does the affirmation of that ministry lie within the church, but the continuation of that and the continual training of men for ministry lie within the church. Look what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. 2. He says to this pastor of the church at Ephesus, verse 2. He says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's a leadership training verse where, where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to pass on the very things that I've taught you and I want you to identify faithful men in the church that you can pour yourself into so that they will be able to teach others also. It's in the context of the church. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Why? Because a man's character is identified by the church. A man's character is known by those around him. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he lists the elder qualifications and all those character skills that are necessary for a man to be an elder. He lists one requirement after another. A man must be this, he must be this, he must be this, he must be this. In order to be an elder in the church, and so where does a man get that tested? Not in the seminary, he gets it tested in the church. Go over to Titus chapter 1. I promise we're going back to Ephesians 4. You don't believe me. Titus chapter 1, same thing. Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I instructed you or directed you. So Paul says to Titus, from one pastor to another, I want you to stay in Crete and I want you to establish elders in that city and what kind of men should they be? And he goes and lists the qualifications. Verse 6, 7, 8, 9, here's what a man like that needs to be above reproach and he lists out the character qualifications. Where is that identified? It's identified in the church. So now, go back to Ephesians 4. I want you to see that the responsibility and the authority for training men for ministry lies within the church itself. In other words, church-based theological training is the biblical model. Churches train pastors. Pastors train pastors. When a man graduates from the expositor's seminary, We are essentially laying hands on him and saying, this man has been vetted amongst us. He has been trained here. We have seen his his call to ministry. We have seen him minister among us. We have seen his spiritual giftedness. We have seen his strengths. We have seen his weaknesses, and we've talked to him about those things, and we've seen his character, and it's been tested here, and things have come up, and we've talked to him about those things, and he's grown, and he's matured, and he is ready, and he is prepared, and we are sending him out. Seminary can't do that seminary can't affirm those things. So a man's readiness for ministry can only be accurately assessed by the local church and its elders. And that's why we're a part of TES. And I wanted to take a a morning just to emphasize that, and I I wanted to take you through Ephesians 4 for just a a moment to underscore that. And so go back to Ephesians 4. We'll look at these verses. But before we do that, some of you right now are thinking... This has nothing to do with me. I can see it. I can read it in some of your eyes. Some of you are thinking, Todd, you're not talking to me because I'm never going to go to seminary. I have no interest in this. I actually have no desire to be a part of it. It's great. It's wonderful for other people, but not for me. God's not calling me to that. I don't know why you're preaching a message on a seminary to a church. Here's, here's why. Here's why you need to hear this. Because you're part of the church. You're part of the very entity that God has designed for the equipping of men for ministry. You're a part of this body. This is not just a ministry at our church. It's not just a room with some things in it that men go off to every once in a while, and they're kind of in the corner, and we never see them, and it's never a part. Of, no, it's embedded into the life of the church. It's not just a ministry at our church. It's a ministry of our church. And bringing up future leaders is not just the job of the pastor. It's the job of the whole congregation. Every single one of you has a part to play in the equipping and the training of men for pastoral ministry. So, in every sense, this message pertains to you. Because you're gonna be a part of this process and you're gonna contribute to them and you're gonna be a a part of them as they're growing and maturing and you're gonna be part of their ministry and you're gonna see them and you're gonna encourage them and you're gonna come alongside them and and you're gonna maybe have to talk to them about some things that you see and you're gonna have to be a part of this process that all of us are a part of. God has called us as a church to be a part of this. So for just a few moments this morning, I want to take you through Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 12, because I I believe that this is one of the clearest texts that demonstrates this priority of a church, that that pastoral training is not separated from ecclesiological context, that pastoral training belongs in an ecclesiological context, it belongs in the church. And I think I can prove that to you from... Ephesians chapter 4. I want to give you two principles this morning. Very simple outline, just two principles that drive our commitment to the training of men of ministry here. Two principles from these verses that really compel us to be committed to this as a body. Okay, first, number one, the first principle is that God promises to give qualified men to lead the church. God promises to give qualified men to lead his church. This is something that he has committed himself to and part of his commitment to the health and the well-being of a church so that the gates of Hades will not prevail over it is the giving of qualified men to lead it. In Ephesians, Paul is describing our position in Christ. He does that in the first three chapters. Then starting in chapter 4, He begins to give us the practical instructions. That's why chapter 4, verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, in light of all that I've told you in the first three chapters and your position in Christ and what you have in Christ because of the gospel, in light of that, then there's some specifics that you need to understand. And he tells us that starting in chapter 4, verse 1. And in the first six verses, there's this call to unity, verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Verse 3 says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You must be unified. We must be unified. That is a call of God upon His church. How does that happen? It happens as each person is spiritually gifted to promote that unity. And starting in verse 7, Paul begins to talk about spiritually gifted people, He says in verse 7, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He says, to each one of us, to every one of you, to every believer, to every single Christian, there is given to them a measure of Christ's gift. You understand that? You have gifts. You have spiritual gifts. You are, you are equipped by the Holy Spirit to serve His church. You have been given gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift, meaning Christ has for you individually measured out gifts. He's taken a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little part of this spiritual gift and a little bit of this gift, and He's mixed it all together, and through the Holy Spirit, he He's given to you personally spiritual gifts, God portions them out. He gives them. He mixes them together in exactly the right amount of His grace, and He personalizes it, and He gives to you specifically, a believer, this wonderful mix of spiritual giftedness for the edification of the church so that our church is edified and growing and building up and being edified and being ministered to and maturing in Christ. Each one of you has a measure of that giftedness from Christ. Now, look at verses 8 to 10. It is a wonderfully marvelous, strange set of verses that tells us what qualifies Christ to give these gifts. Look at verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Paul is telling us that Jesus has a right to give gifts to the church however he wants because he ascended and he descended. What is that? Paul says that Christ descended, look at verse 9, into the lower parts of the earth. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. And I think that means in a a couple different ways. He descended to earth in His incarnation, but I think in its specific sense, it means that He actually descended into the lower parts of earth between His death and His resurrection. Some people oftentimes ask me, where was Christ between His death and His resurrection? I think he was in the lowest part of the earth, in hell. Not paying for sins, that was accomplished at the cross. Christ did not go to hell to pay for sins. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he meant my work is finished. It is done. It has been paid for. Christ did not have to go to hell to pay for your sins. Hell for him was the cross. But I think he went to hell between his death and his resurrection, and it was there that he descended and he preached a message of proclamation of victory to those that were imprisoned there, spirits, demons. First Peter 3.19 says he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. He descended down into the depths of the earth, and between his death and his resurrection, I think he was there making proclamation of victory. Basically, you lost demons, I won. His body was in the grave. His soul was in hell, making a very clear statement of victory. He descended down into the lower parts of the earth, and he ascended. He rose from the dead. Three days later, he conquered sin and death. He rose from the dead. And not only did he rise from the dead, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven and he went back to the Father. Acts chapter 1 tells us how he ascended into the heavens. And so Christ has both descended in order that he can ascend. And because of that, he's the conquering king. He's the conquering victor. And that's the imagery that that Paul is referring to here in verses 9 and 10. He's referring to this one who conquered And brings back this host of captives. Verse 8 says he exactly did that. He led captive a host of captives. He brought back from his victory on the cross, he brought back with him sinners who have been redeemed. Us who were once captive by our sin, he brought us back. And you say, What's the point of all that? Verse 8 says, Because of that, he gave gifts. Because of that, he gave gifts to the church. It gave him the right to give spiritual gifts. By his victory, he's gained the right to rule his church however he wants. He's the one who has earned the right to grant gifts to the church. And what does he do? He gives gifts to specific individuals and, listen to this, he gives specifically gifted men to the church. Generally, he gives gifts to all believers And specifically, he gives gifted men to the church. say, what do you mean? Look at verse 11. This same Christ who led captive a host of captives and the same Christ who ascended and descended and therefore had the right to give gifts to men however he wanted, that same Christ, verse 11, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And so he moves here from specific gifts given to individuals to specifically gifted people he gives to the church in a variety of categories, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We don't have time to talk about them in depth, but apostles, those big A apostles, the 12 or 13 men whom Christ called to be his representatives after he left the earth, Prophets, referring to New Testament prophets, those who carried the mantle of the apostles' ministry and their preaching and teaching. These are New Testament preachers who would re preach the great apostolic doctrines of the apostles, apostles and prophets. And we don't believe that those offices are in operation anymore today. I know not all people believe that. There is a movement today of Churches that believe that apostles is still in office, we do not believe that. The, apostle of, uh, the office of apostle and prophet have passed off the scene. They're not in operation today. You say, why? Look back two chapters to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Actually, look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens... But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. What's that? That's the church. The church. Look at verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of the church. How many times do you lay a foundation? Once. Apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. Once the foundation has been laid, the need for the apostles and prophets has passed off the scene. We don't believe that those offices are in operation anymore today, but the last two are evangelists, people who go and preach the good news of Christ and establish churches. Really, in that that age, the understanding was that they were church planters, and then pastors and teachers, which is actually one office. The pastor-teacher office. This is the elder responsibility. This is the pastor's responsibility. This is the men that God has called to shepherd and lead the church. These are pastors. These are pastor-teachers because they they not only lead, but they also teach and instruct and and explain the Scriptures and faithfully teach God's Word, the the, the, the Word of God. These are pastor-teachers, and these are the ones that God has given to the church to shepherd and lead and direct and care for and facilitate His ministry there. And what I want you to see is that God has promised to give these people to the church. He's promised it. Christ has won the victory, and because of His victory, He has been given the right and the privilege to give to His bride, to the church, pastor teachers who are able to shepherd and care for and lead His church. Now listen, He didn't promise to give those to the seminary. He didn't promise to give them to other institutions. He promised to give them to the church. Which means, Lord willing, He's bringing them here. They're already here. And He'll continue to bring them here. If he's promised it and he's committed himself to it, then he's going to fulfill his promises because he's faithful to his promises. So if he's promised to do that for his church, then we have a responsibility to recognize them and affirm them and identify them and and see who they are because the church has the exclusive authority to affirm a man's readiness for ministry. So we want to be on the lookout. We want to be identifying these men. We want to watch their life. We want to watch their doctrine. We want to see where they're developing in those areas because their credibility for ministry comes with a faithfulness in doctrine and a faithfulness in life, character. So that's one of the reasons that we're committed to training men for ministry in the context of the church. He has promised to give these gifted men to His bride. And if He's promised to do that, then we need to be faithful to recognize it. We want to pray that God continues to bring those men here. We want to pray that this continues to be a place where, where God sends us these kind of men, the, the men with the raw material, the character, the desire, the objective qualifications to shepherd His church. If He's promised to do it, then we as a church need to look out for them. So that's why we're committed to this. And that's one of the reasons that we're partnering with TES because TES gives us the privilege and the ability to shepherd these men and train these men and equip these men and enables us as a church family to identify and affirm these men's readiness for ministry and to watch them develop and grow in their life and their character and their doctrine. Number two, there's a second reason why we are then committed to this kind of ministry with expositors is because God requires those men to train others in the church. If He's given to the church pastor teachers, if He, if he in His kindness and His promise fulfillment of His, of his guarantee that He's given those kind of people to the church, then those men then in turn have the responsibility to train those men. So on the one hand, God is giving these men to the church. On the other hand, the men who are already in those positions of pastor, teacher, and elders, and leaders are in a responsible position to actually invest in and train those men in the context of the church. You say, how do you know that? Look at verse 12. Why has God given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers to the church? Verse 12 tells us, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. God has charged pastor teachers, God has charged elders, God has charged the church leaders to make sure that they are faithfully equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's our responsibility, that's our obligation as church leaders. We are mandated by this text to do exactly that, to equip. If you have an NIV, it says to prepare God's people to fit God's people, to furnish them completely, to cause them to be qualified, to make them adequate for the work of ministry. So, our responsibility, listen, this is very important because this is our philosophy of our church. God has entrusted the leaders of Maranatha Bible Church with the task of equipping the saints with fitting them and preparing them and qualifying them, and that's you with all the skills that you need to be able to faithfully minister in the church. To equip you. To make sure that every believer is properly trained and brought to maturity and that God desires every Christian to be equipped so they can accomplish the purpose that God has required them for. He's designed the church to be this place where elders and pastors train and there's equipping and there's investing and there's developing and there's a pouring into people so that, listen, They do the work of the ministry. That's what verse 12 says. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. This is so critical for us to understand. God has not called church leaders to do all the work. And unfortunately, that's how most churches operate. That's no, your job. That's why we hired you. That's why you get paid the big bucks. That's your job. That's why we went out and found you. You're here because we want you to do the work for us. That's the principle that drives most churches. And Paul flips that completely on its head and he says, no. The job of any pastor, elder, church leader is to equip the saints for the work of service, so that you do the work, so that you're equipped and trained so that you can shepherd, you can lead, you can teach, you can care for the needs of those around you, you can practice the one another's. That's how church is meant to operate. So the 80-20 rule shouldn't be true in any church. It shouldn't be 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. It shouldn't be 90-10. It shouldn't be 10% of the pastoral staff doing 90% of the work. No, no, no. God has specifically designed the church to be a place where those who are in the position of church leadership are, are responsible to put the tools in the hands of the people so that you as the church can accomplish the task that God has given us as a body. So that's how God has designed this. So, our desire here at Maranatha is that we have 250 ministers, 250 pastors, 250 people actually doing the work of the ministry, not two or 10. We have a mantra that sometimes we as elders say all to maturity, some to leadership. All to maturity, some to leadership. God has called a pastoral team, He's called an elder team, He's called a, a church leadership team to bring all people to maturity in Christ. And this is exactly what you see. We're not going to have time to work through the rest of this text, but just read with me the rest of these verses. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is what God has called us to. We are, as church leaders, to invest in and train people within the church so that they rise to a level of maturity in Christ, to the fullness of Christ. What does that look like? Verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Our job as pastors and leaders is to preach and teach and shepherd you in such a way that when you are attacked by the next wave of doctrine that comes, that you're able to say, no, I'm not buying that because I'm grounded spiritually. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. In all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ, from the whole, whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you see the continual emphasis? Church leaders are called to shepherd the church so that there's maturity, there's growth, there's building up, there's development, there's each body part functioning is the way it should so that the church is healthy all to maturity, some to leadership. God has called us not only to to, to faithfully minister to all, He's also called us to make sure that we are a, a people and a church that is committed to investing in the next generation of leaders. It's a mandate to the church to invest in all the saints. And it's a mandate of the church to train future leaders. And the church is the place that takes place best. Right here, in this incubator, this is the best place for that to happen. And so that's why we're committed to this. That's why we believe church based pastoral training is the best way to see men equipped for the leading of his church. That's why we're on board. That's why we're having classes here. That's why our elders are personally mentoring each man who's in this process because the model of a seminary embedded in the life of a church places theological training where it belongs. It's where we can see men. We can see their giftedness. We can watch them mature. We can see their strengths. We can see their weaknesses. We can affirm them. We can say after all that they've been through, this man bears our imprimatur. He's prepared. He's equipped. He's qualified. He's called. He's gifted. He's got the character, essentials necessary to be a man of God to shepherd the church. So that's what we're committed to. Say, why is that important to you? (laughs) Because you're part of that. You get to be part of that process. You get to have them over to your home. You get to pray for them. You, You get to benefit from their ministry to you. You get to give them feedback. You get to to, to get to know them. You get to have them in your homes, in your life, and you get to be a part of the process that's involved in training the next generation and passing the baton to them. So it's for all of us. It's a privilege that we have. And so I want to underscore again the, the critical importance of this and remind us as a church family as we begin another School year that this is essential, and if we 're going to see the health of the church continue for your kids and your grandkids and your great grandkids, the church has to be committed to that. so pray with me as we will bring these men up here in just a moment. Father, we thank you for your very clear mandate in the Word of God to be about this process. We thank you, Father, that you have given us instructions. We thank you that you have given us examples from Paul and Timothy and Titus. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised to give these gifted men to your church, and we want to be faithful to develop them. We want to be faithful to pour into them. We want to be faithful to be a part of the process to hone and shape and perfect them for the work of future ministry. Lord, thank you that you don't leave the future of your church in limbo, but Lord, you give qualified people to your church to be a part of the process to equip them. And so we're thankful. We're thankful for the privilege of partnering with TES, and we're thankful for the men that you've raised up here And Lord, our prayer is that there would continue to be a steady stream of men through Maranatha Bible Church that for the near future will make a great impact in the cause of Christ. That we could have a continual flow of men that we can lay hands on and hire them here and send them to local churches and send them around the world so that your church can be established, so that the gospel can be preached, so that people can come to know Christ. Lord, in a sense... Your mission of the church depends upon qualified leaders. And so we pray that we will be a church that's faithful to that mandate and faithful to the future process. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.